calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Take 15. My name is Bud Haslett, and I'm the head of risk management and derivatives for CFA Institute. Today we're here with Pippa Momgren from Principalis. Pippa, thank you very much. We seem to be faced with a period of an incredible amount of geopolitical risk. What's been going on? Well, we've been arguing to our clients over the course of the last three years that we would definitely get rising commodity prices. That would lead to inflation in emerging markets where half of a worker's income is spent on food and energy. It would hit them hard enough that you would definitely get civil unrest. Um, that sequence is actually happening faster than I expected. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that this inflation price pressure raises the issue of fairness in people's minds as they feel their incomes being squeezed and it makes them mad. And so they start coalescing. Um, and so it's the catalyst that has led to the events in the Middle East. So it's not like people wake up one morning and say, I think today I have to have democracy. Right? There has to be something that motivates this. Um, and the same price pressure is in play all over Asia. And my concern going forward is that people are not recognizing that wage demands are the way in which uh, people are asking for the unfairness to be redressed. And so everything's fine until the wage demands can't be met. And at some point, then we'll test the social fabric in the Asian countries just as much as we've seen in the Middle East. I think also the Chinese are having to work remarkably hard to contain the civil unrest pressures. And while they may be able to succeed at that, most other countries don't have the resources to contain it. So I think geopolitics is back on the landscape. It's a central risk for fund managers. We're no longer in a world where they can say, well, if I can't quantify the risk, I'm not going to pay attention to it. And this is particularly affecting the emerging markets and the frontier markets? Absolutely, again, because of their dependence on food and energy. And I think one of the most critical issues uh, to be aware of is the gap between the official inflation rate versus what people are actually experiencing. Um, and this is true worldwide. In fact, it was interesting, just two weeks ago or so, Paul Volcker came out and said, if you calculate the inflation rate in the United States the way we used to, where we do include food and energy, which last time I checked, we kind of all need as human beings, um, that the real inflation rate's running a lot closer to 10% today. Wow. That's a shocking statement to make. But I think that is also true for most of the emerging markets. I would personally say that China's inflation rate is not at roughly five, where the government says it is, I think it's double that. I think we've got 10% growth and 10% inflation, and that's not such a pretty picture. In other emerging markets, it's an even wider gap. I'd say in terms of food inflation in India, Bangladesh, the official rate's running about 16 and a half, and probably what people are experiencing, particularly in urban areas with the core food staples they eat, is a lot closer to 100% annualized. 
Wow, that really has a big impact big on those impact. people, doesn't it? Is there any like 500-pound gorilla out there that might change a policy or something like that that might really uh, change the uh, whole political structure of the uh, global economy? Well, I think a number of things about geopolitics. Um, not in order of priority, but, but first of all, in this kind of environment where you've got almost unlimited liquidity in the system, and that creates inflation pressures, governments become very focused on basic national security issues, like can we feed the population? Because if we can't feed them at the right price, we'll be chucked out. It's really simple. Uh, so the race to acquire control of hard assets, including soft commodities like agriculture, is on. And we see sovereign wealth funds and sovereign entities pursuing ownership of these real assets in a way that, to me, means we're going to see, uh, for example, agricultural land prices rising, and not just in the traditional places like Brazil and Argentina, but in the United States and Canada, because they're concerned about the actual supply chain. So that's one element of geopolitics that's going to put governments increasingly in conflict with each other about who gets what, who owns what. So that's one level of it. A second level of it um, is back to the, the public and their relationship with the state. And I think we're in a period of history where we're effectively renegotiating the social contract, the deal between me as a citizen taxpayer and the state. And that's happening in Britain, for example, in the form of the government defaulting on their promises to the citizens through the austerity measures. You know, We're not going to be able to do certain things that you had assumed we would pay for. Um, in the U.S., it's happening in the form of municipal authorities may not be able to make their payments and may default. But in emerging markets, it's happening in the form of the citizens saying, wait a minute, how come only a few are benefiting from the wealth in my society? Why am I not benefiting so much? And that's why it matters so much that, for example, in China, people used to believe they would definitely get rich before they got old. And now they're afraid for the first time they might get old before they get rich. And so they got questions. And those questions turn into social protest, re renegotiation of that social contract. And that's why I raise these issues, because they will affect prices. And it's interesting to note that this is happening in a period when equity prices are overall doing well. Volatility in equity prices is relatively low. And uh, you have all this event risk. Well, I actually think this is another layer of the onion. I would argue that pretty much every risk price in the world economy now, from commodity prices to equity prices to property prices, everything is pretty much correlated at one to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Um, that means that when the Federal Reserve takes its foot off the gas pedal, and they're not even talking about touching the brakes at this stage, they're just saying taking the foot off the gas pedal, you see the market wobble. And we've recently seen a massive decline in commodity prices, led by silver, which is down, uh, you know, as of this moment, something like 28% in a few days. Um, we see headlines about hedge funds taking massive hits on their commodity positions because they're all long commodities. So um, this is important to understand that policy steps by central banks are going to affect risk prices. And it's not only the Federal Reserve. We now have the ECB saying we've got inflation pressures we have to think about. 
the Bank of England is beginning to think about what are they going to do about the fact that we've gone from 2% to over 4% inflation in like a year in the United Kingdom. And again, those are the official numbers as opposed to what you really experience. If you live in London, your inflation rate is 20%, and everybody knows it. So I think this is another gorilla, as you say, that is really important to think about. As that liquidity begins to be impaired by central banks taking it back, what happens to risk prices? And what happens to inflation? I mean, I, I totally disagree with the argument that if commodity prices fall, inflation goes away. I would say it's the opposite. The commodity prices will fall, but they'll fall not to the old level. They'll fall to a new, much higher base. And from that point, it'll become harder to find new capital to invest in the actual production because interest rates will be higher. And therefore, we've got a very profound structural problem on the supply side. Are there any pockets of opportunity for investments in this kind of scenario? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as one very big picture view that we've been expressing with our clients, um, I think that before the financial crisis, the best road to profits was through financial engineering combined with financial leverage. In the post-financial crisis environment, I think working with um, entities that have real owner-operator skills and operational leverage is much more likely to give you the returns that you want. But that means giving your capital to a different set of entities than you're accustomed to working with. And those are the guys who can manage the margin pressures that are now in play. Uh, that's why brands are much more important because they can pass on higher prices and manage their input pressures, et cetera. So what are the opportunities in that space? In terms of equities, you can lean towards brands. You can lean towards monopolies. That's what you see Warren Buffett doing, right? He's expressing an inflation view when he buys railways and chemical companies, right? These are things that are absolutely classic for being able to manage those price pressures. They're either monopolies or they have fantastic margin management capabilities. On the other side, I would say, I'm, uh, I think, property, but not so much commercial urban property. I see a massive bid going on in rural agricultural property worldwide. Um, so there are lots of things to do, uh, lots of things to do. And volatility, I think, comes back as a proper asset class all by itself. And there are almost no hedge funds that just do vol. They all kind of think they manage it. But in terms of a proper volatility manager, right, not the underlying asset class, this is a very complicated thing to do, but this is what investors are going to increasingly need. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, over the last couple of years, we had several um, uh, ethical uh, dilemmas that have been worked out in the public. Do you see that continuing in the future with all these challenging times? Are we ever going to get to a point where uh, we're in this rosy situation of uh, ethical nirvana? Well, when you go to university, one thing they don't teach you about in your economics class is a very real phenomena, which I would call the recrimination phase of the economic cycle. And it happens every darn time, because if the public is exposed to a loss of such magnitude that their lifestyle is impacted, then they need to have an answer. Who did this? How did this happen? I don't think that Bernie Madoff is going to turn out to be a sufficient answer to that question, because intuitively people understand that he didn't cause this crisis. Now, he was exposed by the crisis, but the cause remains as yet unresolved. 
And I think there are still questions about, you know, is it just a matter of ethics? Is it just we had a bunch of, you know, people with no ethics who went into the banking system? Or is it deeper than that, that actually there's something systemic uh, that creates an environment in which this too-big-to-fail phenomena occurs, and people take risks that pay them in the short run but don't serve the interests of their investors in the long run. And none of that is resolved. And I, and I think it's quite fascinating the way people spend hours and hours plowing through, you know, the, the Dodd-Frank legislation trying to get a grip on, you know, how governments are going to um, regulate the financial services sector going forward. It's just kind of silly because the fact is they've just massively increased the size of the SEC, the CFTC, huge new budgets. What do you think these people are going to do? Right? They are looking for opportunities to go after the financial services system. And what they're looking for is cash. You know, it's the old question, why rob the bank? Because that's where the money is. Right? These governments are broke. So you can hit two birds with one stone. You can go after the so-called bad guys and get lots of credit in the public domain for it, but also get paid settlements that give you cash flow into the federal government coffers. So I think that we're still in the recrimination phase of the economic cycle, and so this is going to you know, bother the bankers and the financial people for quite some time to come. Excellent points, Pippa. Thank you very much, and thank you for watching another episode of Take 15. Copyright 2011, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.